I want you to open up uh, with me in your Bibles to John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And I'm going to begin by reading these verses. Uh, You know, let me just say this. I I struggle a little bit uh, with Easter and Christmas. And and the reason I do is because uh, Easter and Christmas are the the two times a year um, that visitors come to church uh, that don't usually go to church. And so it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the preacher, like you've got to bring it today, man. Uh, you know, this is your only opportunity. Uh, and, and I think that, that we need to remember as a church that every day for us needs to be about the incarnation and Christ's death and resurrection. That every day for us, we need to continue to be a community that gathers around the cross as the center of our existence. Uh, for in the cross, we find the person of God working out our redemptive history. Uh, and that we talk about the cross uh, as the center rather than the resurrection because the cross contains the life, the death, and resurrection as well as the ascension of Jesus and the sending of his Holy Spirit. Uh, It's the heartbeat of Christianity. If we remove the cross from our Christianity, we drain it of its blood. Uh, There is no power. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so every week at Door of Hope, and so for me, uh, as we prepared, I just, I, my, my thought is uh, that Easter and Christmas should be the same as every Sunday, a celebration of the, of the person of Christ and his work on our behalf, uh, of the acceptance of what I like to call, uh, borrowing from Paul Zoll, God's one-way love, uh, and that one-way love meeting us in the person of Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at um, one of the resurrection stories Uh, or I should say the post-resurrection story of Jesus' appearance to his disciples in John chapter 20. Uh, And and I just entitled this message, Behold the King, Uh, because there's actually, within this interaction, a multitude of facets that come into focus about King Jesus. Uh, In in verses 19 through 23, we're told this is, remember what's happened is Jesus has been crucified three days after his death, Uh, he is resurrected. Remember, resurrection is not the same as resuscitation. We believe as Christians that this was an entirely new mode of existence, a new realization uh, that Christ carries in the resurrected body, uh, the the focus of what we will become when we are resurrected, uh, when we receive our new heavenly bodies. And so there is this incredible reality for us that, that the crucifixion, we would not talk about Christ crucified if he hadn't been resurrected. It's the resurrection that validates the work of the cross, the mysterious part of the cross that we can't explain. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were crucified. That's not what makes Jesus's death significant. It's who died and what it is that he accomplished behind what can be seen that makes it significant. But here we see um, after Jesus has been resurrected from the, de- uh, from the dead, that the tomb is empty uh, and there's already reports uh, that, that Jesus is alive. But his disciples are terrified and they're hiding out because it was dangerous for them to be in the open. If they would kill the leader of their movement, uh, would not their lives be threatened as well? And so the disciples are gathered together in a room. They're scared Uh, And and this is what happens in verses 19 through 23. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I love that. They should be feeling embarrassed uh, because remember, Jesus said, each one of you will leave me alone, but I am not alone on the night of his betrayal uh, for my father is with me. Uh, Jesus had to face the cross alone. Uh, they couldn't help him in the work that he was going to do. In fact, they in fear fled for their lives. Um, and now Jesus is showing them the wounds in his hands and feet and they're, they're just glad he's alive and Jesus doesn't rub it in their face that they fled like cowards uh, because that was the whole reason he went to the cross was to deal with humanity's failings and brokenness. Uh, and so it says they were glad when they saw the Lord. Uh, and I, I appreciate that nuanced statement instead of they were ashamed when they saw the Lord. They were glad. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. I, I love that a second time. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You can hide right now, but just know that soon you will be sent out and you will face the suffering of the world, but you will carry with it the good news. What is the good news? The good news is that God works in bad news. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the cross is all about. That's what Jesus came to do is to enter into not just identif identification with humanity, but identification with our lowest point, our sin. Uh, and here Jesus gives the disciples a mission, gives them a purpose for their existence. It's not just about being saved, but it's about being born again into a family that we might be witnesses to a world that is lost. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. And he redeemed the world through his work on the cross. And it is our responsibility as his disciples to proclaim that message. And so he gives them a mission. And then it says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So here is this incredible story of Jesus in his resurrection body appearing to his disciples, declaring peace over their lives, showing them the, the marks of, of the nails that were in his hands and feet, cut upon his side, the marks that the thorns, I'm sure, left upon his brow. You remember, Jesus was beaten uh, beyond human recognition. And in this resurrection body, part of this new mode of being, he still carries with him the marks of the cross. Uh, it shows us that God does not forget. It may say that God forgets, uh, will forget our, remember our trespasses no longer, but that's not divine amnesia. Uh, that is that he will not hold them um, over us any longer because they have been dealt with once and for all on the cross. But Jesus appears to them, declares peace over them, shows them his hands in his side and, and allows them to rejoice in his resurrection. He declares peace over them again. He gives them, he gives them a mission. He declares to them that they will receive. He breathes upon them, showing them that they will need his life to actually fulfill his work and even gives them authority, authority that directly comes from him as the author and the finisher of our faith. And what I want us to see in this passage are the different facets of Jesus's kingship. What I want us to do is to behold the king. I think that it's important for us to remember um, as human beings that we are captured by whatever it is that holds our attention. Whatever it is that you give your time to, your mind to, your heart to, that is what you love, that is what you worship. 
And what we are told again and again in scripture is that we are to be captured by the presence of the living Christ, to give our attention to him, to look to him, to behold him. That word behold is an interesting word that's used throughout the scriptures. And the word behold literally means to keep. It's to perceive through sight or even apprehension. It's to grab a hold of and not let go. It's to be captivated by the living Christ. Hebrews 12 verses one through two um, captures this command upon our lives as Christians. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Notice the, distingu- uh, the distinction between those two things. Lay aside every weight and sin, everything that can bog us down, everything that can distract us, all the voices that are vying for our attention, all the ways that the world is telling us that we have the power within ourselves to help ourselves and to discover who we are. But the, pro- the problem is that the human ego is an enigma. We cannot truly understand ourselves. There has to be some way that we can truly discover purpose and it, it lies outside of ourselves, not within ourselves. And I love this. He, the writer of Hebrews recognizes the distractions of the world and the ways in which it lies to us and drags us down into despair. But he says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Obviously, our life is going somewhere. Where is it going? Where is it leading? He says, and I love this. This is the key, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what was the joy set before him? It's you. You are the joy set before Jesus. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, saying that he literally conquered death and the dominions of darkness upon the cross. And through his resurrection and ascension is now seated at the right hand of God as authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, granted to him. I love that. But I think this is a, a verse that really captures this call to behold. We're called to look to Jesus. What does it mean to look at Jesus? What does it mean to to gaze upon Jesus, this God that we cannot see. Remember I said, to behold is to apprehend, to grab a hold of truth, mentally grab a hold of it, to draw it down into our hearts. And I think that this is important as well. Revelations chapter one, Revelation chapter one, verses 17 through 18. And when I saw him, John says, uh, in his vision, uh, I fell at his feet. Who is him? It's Jesus. Fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I love that. I died, and behold, I'm alive. Grab a hold of that fact. Grab a hold of my life, my work. I am present. When two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. That the church has always been built. Authentic Christian faith has always been built upon a response to the living God whom Christians declare is powerfully at work among them through the resurrected Jesus. So what should we behold in in this passage before us in John? Well, the first thing in verse 19 shows us that we should behold Jesus as the king of peace. Look what it says here. It says, in the same day at the evening, being the very first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. So he comes right into the midst of their anxiety, right into the midst of their fear, right into the midst of their existence. And there he speaks to them 
peace be with you. I love this picture that gives, because it's fundamental to what we believe as Christians, that when Christ is at the center of our existence, peace follows. I think that's extremely important for us to get our head around because we need shalom more desperately than anything else. Our world is a, a, a bundle of anxieties, difficulties, trials, tribulations. The thing that I love about the gospel is its honesty around the suffering of the world. And it, it never, Jesus even says, he says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give. And, and I like what, what, he, what he goes on to say. He says, listen, in this world, you're gonna have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And so our peace is not anchored in a trouble-free existence, but our peace is anchored in the very personal presence of our sympathetic high priest who understands our difficulties, does not promise to eradicate them, but actually promises to be with us in the midst of them. And that is something that I can grab a hold of. That is something that preaches. That is something that is actually common to human experience. We need a foundation to actually push through the challenges of existence. You can't be human and avoid pain. You can't be human and avoid suffering. I, but what we have in Jesus is peace in the midst of the storm. And I think that this is a powerful picture here. The word that is used here is much more than simply the eradication of fear or the dissipation of anxiety, because I still feel fearful every week when I have to preach and I still get super anxious. It's not the dissipation of those things, uh, it, but it is more closely related to the Hebrew word shalom, which is a word of completeness or well-being, in spite of the fact that I'm anxious, in spite of the fact that I feel afraid. Uh, I am confident that Jesus is with me and for me and will never leave me nor forsake me. I work from that foundation. I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't have that foundation, nor should you as followers of Christ function from any other foundation. How do we enter into life's difficulties by having the peace of Christ? Shalom, uh, as it's been said, is life at its best under the gracious hand of God. I love that. He could say this. I think it's important for us to understand Jesus' ability to speak those words, peace be with you, to his disciples was directly connected to the fact that Ephesians 2.14 gives us a theological insight into what it is that Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. We're told in scripture that sin has created a division between God and humanity. That sin didn't create an angry God, and, uh, but it did create broken relationships. Because the first person we see in the Bible entering back into the narrative when our first parents fall, uh, God doesn't turn his back on them in the garden and leave them. They hide. But it is God who enters into their brokenness and asks the question, where are you? So the whole story, the redemptive story of scripture is about God's redemptive purposes. That is his desire to restore right relationship. Because I like to always define sin. Sin is not the little things that we do wrong. Sin is the rebellion against God's rule over our lives, that we were created by God for God. But in our, in our sinful thinking, it says that sin has corrupted all people, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The idea is, is that we have made ourselves our own gods. And we should all be honest enough to say, whether you believe in God or not, that we ourselves don't make very good gods. 
I think that's a fair assessment. And so what Jesus comes to bring peace to is he reconciles the human predicament, this brokenness where we have put ourselves upon the throne of our hearts and found ourselves in an absolute mess. Christ Jesus, it says that God entered into his own story. The creator became a creature for us. In fact, the way that Major Ian Thomas, one of my favorite British preachers puts it, it says that the life that Christ lived qualified him for the death that he died and the death that he died qualifies us now for the life that he lived. The idea is, is that in Christ, that, 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 that problem, that relational rift that has occurred due to sin, that Christ actually dealt with it once and for all. That the good news is that God has entered into our bad news and made it his own. That he is both on the cross the judge of all that is unjust and at the exact same time, the one who was judged as if he was the one who had committed all the crimes. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God is how the scripture phrases it. And the power of this is that we're told in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Peace is not something that God gives. Peace is God's presence itself in our lives through Christ. He himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And so I ask you, within this theater space where it feels like night all the time, uh, is Christ your center? Because when he's your center, peace follows, shalom follows. It's not a trouble-free existence, but it's rest, it's shalom in the midst of the storm. Have you beheld the king of peace? Secondly, we see in verse 20 that he is not just the king of peace, but he is the king of scars, the king of wounds. He is our wounded healer. And we must behold that. We must behold that. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw him. The wounds of Christ are his credentials. The achievement of Jesus is brought to the disciples' attention through the presentation of his wounds. In John 17, verse four, he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the works which you have given me to do. Perfection cannot be improved upon. Jesus on the cross, we considered this on Good Friday, said these words, it is finished. Not, I'm finished. I failed. But it is finished. It is finished. Last words are really significant. A couple weeks ago, I considered famous last words. Jesus says, it is finished, meaning I have completed the work that has been given to me. That's much better than Oscar Wilde's last words. You know what they were? Either those curtains go or I do. It's pretty good, actually. <laughs> That's <was> pretty funny. <laughs> Sigmund Freud's last words were absurd. This is absurd. Fascinating. John Sartre's last words was, I have failed. Jesus, last words, it is finished. I have completed the work that the Father has given me to do. Uh, what I love about that is people who hold to the gospel, what this tells us as followers of Jesus, it's an essential Christian truth, is that we believe in the depths of our being that we are incapable, absolutely impotent in our ability to save ourselves. That when Jesus says, it is finished, he's saying, you cannot add to what I have done. There is no front-loading in the gospel. You don't say, Put your, do this and put your faith in me. No, the gospel declares 
with absolute clarity. You cannot save yourself, but I have died for you. What the cross tells us is that on our worst day that Jesus is crazy about us, that God loves us, and he loves us with an everlasting love. That forgiveness has been worked out, and I believe that salvation has literally been obtained by Jesus on the cross for all people. I do not believe that all people will receive that work. I think that there is an impossible possibility that exists for human beings, which is that as God, Jesus is lifted up, the spirit actually illuminates the mind to say yes or no to the yes that God has already declared over them in Christ. That God has declared yes over sinful humanity in Jesus. The question is, is will we say yes to his yes? Sadly, many people say no. They'd rather continue to be their own gods than accept the one who died for them. The wounds cannot be, it shows that his work cannot be added to. It is, it is, in, it cannot be improved upon. His wounds are his achievement over sin. First John chapter two, verse two, it says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's a really complex word, but just in its basic comprehension, it means that he stood in the place for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin. He became the atoning sacrifice. And not for ours only, I love what the scripture says here, but that he became a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. No getting around that. He, his wounds show his achievement over death. Romans 6, 9 says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Over the dominions of darkness. In John 16, 11, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is another word that we call the devil. Jesus, victory over the dominions of darkness. Even his conquering of the world itself and its false systems. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. This connects us with our sympathetic high priest. One of the things I love about him showing the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side is it reminds us that we do not have a God who does not understand human suffering. I like what Dorothy Sayers says in Creed or Chaos. She says, whatever game God is playing, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. There's a mystery involved in suffering but that mystery uh, finds at least its, its solution within the enigma of the cross. Listen to what John Stott um, says in his most profound, if you've never read The Cross of Christ, it's one of the greatest books written on the subject of, of the cross. And Stott said this, I thought it was really powerful. He says, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to look away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. 
our sufferings became more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. So powerful. What we need to understand is that the resurrection, which is what we celebrated on Easter, implies the cross. Resurrection implies that there was first death. In fact, Paul himself says, I preach, I have chosen to preach nothing to you but Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ crucified, those four words. But he also says this in 1 Corinthians 15 around the resurrection, and if Christ has not risen, then our preaching, that is preaching of Christ and him crucified, is empty and your faith is also empty. And so he is the king of scars, and we must behold that. Look at verse 21, because here we see that Jesus is the king of mission. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is not two missions stated, but a continuation of one mission, the representation of King Jesus to the world through the gospel. I like what Fleming Rutledge, uh, she's become my new, she's like the, actually the first like female theologian I've discovered that just as she, her book is so beautiful called The Crucifixion. It's a 700 page tome that's written like one long, beautiful sermon. It's incredible. Uh, and she said this about, about the work of the cross in regards to it creating mission for us, giving us purpose. And I thought it was so beautiful. She says, it is God's new creative act his great reclamation project that is even greater than creation itself because whereas we are wonderfully created, we are yet more wonderfully restored. So powerful. That it's not just about Jesus saving you out of hell to get you into heaven, but in that restoration process, we are actually given God's spirit that we might become witnesses, conduits of God's love to a broken world, that we carry the message of the gospel to a world that is broken. And Jesus says, I now send you. Just as the Father sent me, you will continue my, the, the work of redemption by being conduits by which my life flows through. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. The only tangible evidence that we actually are experiencing the living Christ is defined by how we love. Not how orthodox we are, although that's important because it informs how we love, uh, I believe that the essence of the gospel has to be played out practically. We can say we believe in Jesus, but if that belief in Jesus doesn't lead to a supernaturally natural life, that is a spirit-filled, infused life that actually manifests in witness, then our belief is false because belief leads to action. Because yes, God chooses in his sovereign love to meet sinners in their sin, but he is not content to leave us there process of sanctification is the empowerment by the Holy Spirit as we humbly accept in our brokenness the call to be carriers of God's redemptive message. He's the king of mission, and we have to behold that. Look at this in verse 22, for he is also the king of life. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The symbolic breathing brings us back to the Garden of Eden. We are yet even wonderfully restored, more wonderfully restored. The resurrection guarantees that we too can become once again living souls through the presence of the Spirit. If we are to be representatives of the living Christ, we must have his life in us. I always like to define faith as faith is not the belief that Christ exists. Faith, as Tozer puts it, is the gaze of the soul 
upon a saving God. That's beautiful, but that's not that helpful. Uh, I think that the best way to define faith is faith is a disposition or an attitude toward God that allows God the right to be God in and through our lives. What Luther said is that we have to accept in passivity the alien work of God. God's work on our, on our behalf through Jesus, we receive that into ourselves, recognizing we are absolutely incapable of adding to it or working on his behalf apart from it. And so as we submit, I would say that the one thing we have the right to do, our true freedom is found in our submission to his authority. And the more we submit to him, the freer we become. And the freer we become, the more responsible we are for what he has given to us. And this is that powerful paradox of God's part and our part. As I always like to say, my part seems to be I did the sinning and his part seems to be that he did the saving, which is, I accept that as well. But it should be also something more than that as he sets us free in the gospel, we then have the privilege of actually becoming the conduits of his very presence by the power of his spirit. And this is why he breathed upon the disciples. It's a, it's a recreation of the creation showing that we are a new creation in Christ. And then finally in verse 23, we see him as the king of authority. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to Peter and his disciples when Peter declared that he is the Christ, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven. Uh, oh, excuse me, this is at the very end in the Great Commission. Jesus says, after his resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I believe that this authority here, he gives, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Because he lives, we have his presence within us. And by his spirit, we have the authority to declare the good news. For those who receive it, it is forgiveness. For those who reject it, it is condemnation. And so in conclusion, I think that the powerful reality of Christ's atoning work is it continues to be the living reality of our lives today. That the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and the sending of his spirit means that the end is the beginning and the beginning is not yet. It's not yet done. It may be the end of a redemptive work, but he's not finished with us. He is still working in us and through us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is just the beginning, guys. God has called us to participate in his redemptive purposes for human history. We look to the cross and continue to look to the cross. We don't graduate from the gospel. It continues to be the means by which our lives are given purpose and direction. We are enjoying heaven because heaven is where Jesus is on the way to heaven. This is our call. This is what we are about as a community of faith. Amen? Let's pray.